Amen. Good morning. If you would turn in your Bibles with me to Matthew chapter 5. Matthew chapter 5, we're going to be in verses 13 through 16 today. And while you're turning there, I want to draw your attention to all that's happening today. I know that probably many of you heard the announcements. Maybe some of you didn't hear all that's happening today. Um, We're starting with church, which we normally do on Sunday mornings. But then uh, right after church, we have our city sweep event that go through 12 to 3.30. And then after that, there's a barbecue from 3 to 5. And then after that is Vespers. And in there somewhere is youth group. And there's lots of stuff happening today. Um, And I just wanted to, just for clarity's sake, let you know that um, some of you maybe are asking, what is the purpose of so many different events? Well, one is, if we're not tired, then we're not doing it right. I'm just kidding. Um, The purpose really is community. The goal is community, and ultimately the goal would be that the community would see our community and ask the question, uh, how can I be a part of that? How do I get to know who they know? How do I get to follow Christ like they do? So the main goal in my mind is that we would have community. And this barbecue that's happening after City Sweep today, there's going to be plenty of food. We'll have yard games. We may have to modify some of what we're doing. The bounce house might actually be here in the sanctuary um, because we don't want four-year-olds floating away um, to the river. That'd be bad. It'd be a fun ride until it ended, but we're not going to do that to the kids, and I just want you to know that you're invited to that. I want you to be willing maybe to invite someone, because what we're trying to do is just celebrate all that God has done in City Suite, but also all that God is doing, and um, I want us to be a community that invites people into our community. And um, so ultimately, the goal would be that they would know Jesus, but, but this is a very entry-level, hey, come have a free hamburger or hot dog and hang out and get to know the people that I hang out with on Sundays. Um, two weeks ago, we wrapped up a series on the Beatitudes, and they came out of Matthew chapter 5, and they went from verses 1 through verse 12. And this week, we are moving into a new series, and it comes from actually the same section of Scripture, not the Beatitudes, but from the Sermon on the Mount. And this series that we're going into is titled, Unworldly for the World. Unworldly for the world. And the idea is this, if you and I have been saved by Jesus Christ, if we have put our faith in Jesus, we are followers of Christ, then we live in this world, but we're different than the world. And our Christian lives are different from the world that we live in because of of the constant testimony of God's grace upon our lives. We're not different in the world because we're weirdos. We're different in the world because God is doing something in our lives. Martin Lloyd-Jones once said this, The glory of the gospel is that when the church is absolutely different from the world, she invariably attracts it. And then... And it is then that the world is made to listen to her message, though it may hate it at first. After coming out of the Beatitudes series a couple of weeks ago, there's a possibility that we could make a mistake. Um, Some of us maybe would be tempted to make this mistake. We could hear this. Um, We could hear that because the Beatitudes describe the inner character of those who are members of God's kingdom then I can live these characteristics in isolation. 
Because these are essentially interior things, and I can live out my faith on the inside. Away from the world that is so contradictory to the things of God, I can just be a Christian on the inside. I, I can have my own personal relationship with God and nobody else needs to know about it. And we could make the mistake of believing that maybe Jesus has come to be the founder of a Christian commune. It's possible for us to make that mistake even after reading the Beatitudes. And if our thoughts tend in that direction, then what Jesus is going to do here today is in his words in Matthew 5, verse 13 through 16, he's going to reorient our thoughts. We, we need to be clear that Jesus is working from the inside first and then out, but he's going to reorient our thoughts because Jesus calls us as kingdom people to be visible displays of God's grace in the midst of an unbelieving world. Look, look at what Jesus says in Matthew 5, verses 13 through 16. These are the verses we will study today, but he says this, You are the salt of the earth, but if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. You are the light of the world. A city on a, can, uh, sorry, a city on a hill cannot be hidden. Nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. I'd, I'd like to point out First of all, the mistake that we could make with the Beatitudes is that we could believe that our life is supposed to be this sort of inner life. And Jesus says, no, that's not true. But then the other thing I'd like for us to be aware of this morning before we dive into this passage is that another potential mistake that we can make really with anything from the Bible is, well, I know that you're probably sick of hearing this, but it, it's that we have a tendency to try and turn Jesus' words into things that we need to do in order to be saved. That could be a mistake we make going into this. This is the definition of legalism. That we take words from the Bible and we say, if you don't do this, then you cannot be saved. My works save me. And so from the start, I want us to get this straight. God is the one who makes the followers of Jesus into salt and light. He does the work. Here is why this is important. If you and I believe that being salt and being light is something that we can produce in ourselves, we make ourselves the center of our theology. And the reality of the Christian faith is this. You are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Jesus Christ alone. Not by your works. But the other possibility of us believing that it's my responsibility to become something and that's what will save me is that we will crumble under the weight of our calling. If God has called you to be a witness in the world and left, you to, left it to you and me to do in our own power, then the burden would be far too great. But I want you to remember from our study of the Beatitudes that Jesus did not pronounce a blessing on those who have righteousness he actually said, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. And Jesus isn't changing that principle here when he talks about being salt and light. What he is saying is this, God, when you put your faith in God, God works righteousness out in you as a testimony to the world. 
So we don't become salt and light in order to be Christians. We are salt and light because we've put our faith in Jesus. And we're salt and light because of what Jesus has done for us and what the Holy Spirit is doing in us and through us. So Jesus says today, you are the salt of the earth. If you have put your faith in me, you are the salt of the earth and you are the light of the world. These are hugely important statements if you are in Christ, if you're a follower of Christ, if you are a disciple of Jesus, then you are not just the salt of your community, you are not just the salt of your household, you are the salt of the earth and the light of the world. This is who you are in Christ and this is the wonder of salvation. And Jesus says this, to you today, this is who you are. And so what I want to do is I want to look at these words today and I want to help us to understand our calling as disciples. I also want to be clear here. This, these are scriptures that are, that are shared directly to people that are followers of Jesus. If you haven't put your faith in Christ, you can, and these can mean something to you. But today I want you to know that if you are a follower of Christ, Jesus is saying this to you directly. So the first word that we see here is salt, verse uh, Matthew chapter 5, verse 13, it says this, You are the salt of the earth, but if salt has lost its taste, how can its saltiness be restored? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. In order for us to understand fully what Jesus is saying, what we need to do first is we have to understand the function of salt in Jesus' context, in his original context. And one of the first questions that we should probably ask is, what does it mean to be salt? I, as I study this week, I came up against one major issue for me, and that is that scholars have actually identified 11 different functions of salt in the ancient world. So when Jesus was saying you're the salt of the earth, it could have meant 11 different things to those people. Salt had so many uses in Jesus' context that it was highly, highly valued. We, we think about, when we think about salt, I don't know about you guys, but when I think about salt, I think of those little blue Morton brand containers at Walmart that are like 26 ounces and they cost a dollar. That's how I think of salt. But these people in Jesus' context would have known that salt was the second most important commodity on earth at the time. For, for us, it's gas. That stuff's worth a lot of money. But for them, it was salt. For them, the sun was the number one commodity and then salt was number two because of all that it could do. In fact, salt was so valuable in that time that the Romans used it as a currency to pay their soldiers. If your soldier did not, if a Roman soldier did not carry out his duties, other soldiers would say this, he is not worth his salt. And that's where we get the expression, because maybe you've heard it before, he's not worth his salt. And Jesus today is saying this, if you were my disciple, if you were my follower, if the Beatitudes are the reality of your inner character, then you are salt. You are valuable. You are a Christ-empowered influencer into the world. My kingdom people are salt. They are so important in the kingdom. And here are just a few of the 11 functions of salt in the ancient world. It purified, it preserved, it added flavor, it was used for healing, salt created thirst, all things that we can understand. We understand the idea of salt adding flavor, right? That's how we use it. So 
we tend to think of salt on meat or on french fries, but I was thinking this week of how some people will put salt on a tomato or a piece of watermelon. Has anybody? Okay, that's not weird. Um, I, I personally think it's a little bit nuts, but, um, I, but people who do it say that it intensifies the flavors of those fruits. Um, what, what, what is really interesting to me is that as far as I can remember, I have never heard somebody say, wow, that is amazing salt. That salt tasted so good. But I have heard people say this, that's a great tomato or that was a really good watermelon. Why? Because the job of the salt is not to make you think how great the salt is, but how great the salted food is, right? And in this light, Christians are called salt because they flavor the world that they live in. We flavor our school systems, we flavor our neighborhoods, we flavor our jobs, we flavor politics, we flavor media, etc. Why? So that people, so that the people that we are around, not so they'll say, wow, that salt is really awesome, but they will say, how great is their God? And maybe you also understand the idea of salt acting, acting as an antiseptic or a purifier. Possibly you've discovered this function of salt if you've ever been in the ocean with an open cut on your leg. Salt, salt is a potent disinfectant. And, and I've struggled before. This is <clears throat> maybe more information than you want, but it was what I thought of this week. I, I've struggled before with canker sores. I don't know if anybody else has, but... I sometimes will put salt on those. Um, it's painful. It hurts. But after the pain subsides, my canker sore always seems to heal up. And the reality is true of Christians, too, in this light, right? We can act as a disinfecting agent in our world. And sometimes the world will call us judgmental or intolerant. But in grace and kindness and gentleness, when we love people enough to be honest with them, like salt... It can still sting, but it can have a purifying effect. Salt can have a bite, but the smack of salt can also bring healing from the infection of sin. Salt was also in the ancient world, and it is still today, a preservative. They didn't have refrigerators, but it's a very bleak picture, but the world always tends towards decomposition. Why is that true? Why does the world always tend towards decomposition? Well, we're dying. It's part of the reality of life. And death causes decay. When a living creature dies, it can no longer support its cell structure, so the body begins to decompose. And we're part of a dead and dying world, and it's a decomposing world. But we know this to be true. We know that when God created the world and Adam and Eve, everything pulsated with life. And then when sin invaded through death, or sin invaded, death entered the scene, and with death came decay, and when things decay, they fall apart. And I don't think that I have to convince you of this, but we can see decay all over our society. And I I don't even mean to be offensive, but just look at marriages that have a difficult time staying together or families that are broken, or law and order that's laughed at, or truth that's just being torn down, and the list goes on and on and on and on. And from a spiritual point of view, decay is the ultimate disaster, because spiritual death 
means that humanity is separated from God. And what Jesus is telling his disciples when he says you are the salt of the earth, he's saying that you function as a retardant to decay and a preservative in a disintegrating world. How? Well, scattered out among the nations on the earth, Jesus' followers bear faithful witness to the transforming power of the gospel of Jesus Christ by the lives that we live. And when our talk and our walk match up, we are salt in a decaying world, in a world that is falling apart. After explaining the purpose of salt, Jesus continues in verse five, or chapter 5, verse 13, with a word of warning that says, But if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? And I don't know about you guys, but I, when I read this, the question that comes to mind is, how can salt lose its saltiness? Maybe you guys feel the same way, but in our modern day, and scientifically speaking, salt cannot lose its saltiness, right? Because sodium chloride is a stable compound. Water is wet, salt is salt. But salt in Jesus' day was collected around the Dead Sea, and it was seldom purely sodium chloride. And so it meant this, it meant that it was susceptible to becoming contaminated with impurities, or washed out by other minerals that were collected with it. And when it got washed out, it would lose its effectiveness as salt. And so Jesus is saying this for you and for me. He's saying this is a warning to you guys. That compromise is a deadly cancer to our witness to the world. We are salt. We don't become salt. Jesus is saying, if you were my follower, you are salt. We are made salt by our relationship with Jesus. But if we start adding all of the ingredients that the world loves, a dash of the love of money or a pinch of feeling, the pleasures of sexual immorality, or the list goes on and on, when we start to water down our witness and add things to our lives, then we do not reflect the beauty of God's kingdom. And our salt becomes tasteless. Salt loses its effectiveness when it is diluted. And so then Jesus goes on in verse 13, and he says that the tasteless salt is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. I want us to hear this clearly, that this metaphor does not mean that a watered-down or a tasteless disciple loses their salvation. Instead, it means that deluded followers of Jesus have lost their testimony and their influence. And in some ways in the kingdom... We're sort of without purpose. It's a warning to us as believers about what happens to our testimony when we mix up with the world, but it's also a warning to the larger church. As a corporate church, if we become tasteless, if we become anemic and watered down by worldly pursuits, we're going to be snuffed out of existence. It's actually happened all throughout church history, and before we move on, I just want to say that this could happen to our church too, here at Hillside. Even if we seem to be flourishing today, we can become tasteless tomorrow if we were unaware of our role as salt. The, The church of today has a tendency to do stuff like this. We brag about the size of our salt shakers. Like, wow, look at how big that building is, or look at how great their programs are. Or we will brag about the amount of salt that we can fit in our salt shakers. Whoa, we had 300 people at Easter or whatever. 
instead of salting down our communities with the good news and the good works of Jesus Christ, we brag about how big our salt shakers are and how many people we have. The whole point of salt is this, and, and we need to hear it clearly. The whole point of salt is to leave the shaker and hit the meat. We must impact our world with the life of Christ, give the world a taste and a glimpse of who Christ is. I think that Jesus' call to us this morning is to leave the shaker and be salt beyond hillside. So we are salt, but then Jesus goes on and says that we are light. Verse 14, he says, you are the light of the world. And we have to understand how profound this statement must have been from Jesus to his listeners. Because there's this rich background to this idea of light in the Old Testament. It stood as revelation and instruction and hope and joy and righteousness and salvation and radiance of the divine presence. And Isaiah chapter 49 verse 6 describes Jesus as a light for the nations that, that uh, my salvation may reach to the ends of the earth. And then Jesus himself calls it himself in John chapter 8, verse 12, I am the light of the world. And so these people that Jesus is talking to, they know that God is light. They know that his son, Jesus, is light. But now think about how remarkable this statement might have been from Jesus to his disciples because he looks at them and he looks at you and me and he says this, the world is dark, the world is decomposing, the world needs salt, and the world lost in darkness also needs light and you are the light of the world. What does he mean? Well, in case we're confused, Jesus actually gives two examples right away, and the first one comes in verse 14. He says, you are the light of the world. A city on a hill cannot be hidden. Again, I think some context here is really important. In Jesus's day, Cities were often set on a hill for a number of reasons. They were in arid countries, and so that meant that having your city on a hill meant that you were, more, uh, you were in a better spot for, for air, so it was cooler to be on a hill. The other reason that cities were on a hill is if you lived in a walled-in city on a hill, then you were situated on the high ground, and it was easier to defend against attack. These are reasons that you would put your city on a hill. But Jesus' point here is not a city's defense or a city's air conditioning. Jesus' point here is visibility. Most cities in Jesus' day were constructed largely of white limestone. And they were placed on a hilltop to reflect the bright sun. And what it did is it allowed for visibility from miles away. At nighttime, the white also mirrored both the moonlight and the burning lamps, acting as a beacon for directing travelers towards the city. And what Jesus is saying here is he is saying, just like our hilltop cities reflect light and they call people towards themselves, your life should reflect the sun too, me. My disciples should make it easier for people to find their way to God. We are a city set on a hill that should be elevated and easily visible. Followers of Jesus should be marked as people who give hope and direction for weary pilgrims in this world. He's saying, give the world a taste of my goodness, salt, and give the world a glimpse of me, light. And if that wasn't enough of an illustration for or a parable, Jesus then goes on in verse 16, or 15 sorry, and says this, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house. 
For us, sometimes these illustrations are hard to understand because we walk into a room and flick a light off, right? And then we turn it off when we leave, unless you're my kids, and then I turn it off when they leave. We like to flick lights on in rooms and turn them off in our modern day, but in Jesus' day, during his time, in Jewish homes, they were modest one-room structures. And they were lit by a single oil-burning lamp that would have fit in the palm of your hand. And the whole house would be lit by this lamp when it was in the middle of a room set on a lampstand. And Jesus says something that his listeners would have found comical. I'm actually guessing they laughed when he said this. But he said, you would never light your oil burning lamp and then put a basket over the top of it. Why? Because it's nonsense. It would be like you and I turning a light on in the room, and then covering it with duct tape. Why? What's the point? Nobody turns the light on and then covers it. It ruins the purpose of the light. If you were going to put the light out, you'd blow it out. Or if you're going to put the light out in our room, you'd turn the light switch off. Nobody would ever light an oil lamp and then place it under the basket. He's being silly, almost. Because the purpose of a lamp is to light. And then Jesus goes on in verse 16, he says, In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. So all of the background and all of the facts about the cities and the houses and limestone and lamps and all of that stuff may be interesting, but the main point of interest and importance, according to Jesus, is visibility. This is who you are, and when you don't act this way, it's as silly as you covering up who you actually are. Christians or followers of Jesus were never made to be invisible. It's as absurd as a lit lamp under a basket. And Jesus' words here may not again be what we were expecting. It may not again be what the disciples might have expected right after Jesus taught the Beatitudes, because if you remember in those eight Beatitudes, they are so countercultural that we might have thought that Jesus would have followed up those eight Beatitudes by saying this. Now, because you're going to be different, and because I don't want you to be tainted or mixed up with the evil of the world, then I want all of you to go build a monastery in the desert so you're safe. Or I want all of you to start a secluded settlement in the barren fields of South Dakota. But right here, right in Jesus' words here in verses 13 through 16 today, Jesus says just the opposite. He says, you are not called as believers in me to hide yourself from the world. But rather, his calling is to those who follow him to permeate and to pierce the darkness of the world. We are to be in the world, but not of the world. We are called to be unworldly for the benefit of the world. We are to be as visible as a lamp on a table in a dark house, or as visible as a fully lit skyscraper in an otherwise dark sky. How? How do we do this? Well, Jesus actually says right here in verse 16, he says it's by our good works. That, that might be shocking to some of you because we really like to think 
that good works is something that only Pharisees would call us to. Jesus right here says, by your good works. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your what? Your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. Now remember, you're not doing these to earn your salvation, but because of your salvation, this should be part of who we are. Your good works don't save you. That's legalism. But your good works are a clear evidence of God's good work in you. What, Jesus, what does Jesus mean by good works? What, what, what We have to define good works. Well, here's a biblical definition. Good works are actions that God has commanded us to do in his holy word that are fruit and evidence of a true and lively faith. Two, two important things in that definition. Our good works are produced because of our faith, and our good works are good only if they are actions that are taught by God's word. The Bible is the place that we have to start and stand when we talk about good works. And that doesn't mean that walking an old lady across the street is bad because it's not in the Bible. But knowing and heeding the explicit ethical commands of Scripture is where we should start. And when Christians live out God's word, whether it's the Beatitudes or the Gospels or even the moral law of the Old Testament non-Christians start to see the beauty and attractiveness and truthfulness of Jesus Christ. And the response for them is to glorify God in heaven. When Christians love others, even their enemies, the world tastes the salt and sees the light of the gospel, and God gets the glory. When we pray for and respect our authorities and the world tastes the salt and sees the light of the gospel, God gets the glory. When we give generously to those in need, the world tastes the salt and sees the light of the gospel, and God gets the glory. When we care generously for those in our own fellowship, the people in our church, the world tastes the salt and sees the light of the gospel, and God gets the glory. So maybe you're asking, where do we go with this today? What do we do with this information? And you might be thinking, I'm not very impressive. I don't have lots of gifts and talents. I'm not educated. I don't have a lot of money. I'm not outgoing. I'm not whatever. How can God use me as salt and light in a decomposing and dark world? And I think sometimes we do ourselves a disservice because we say all of those things about ourselves And then we put ourselves up against some pastor or somebody who does it for a living or someone with a bigger personality and we just say, that's their job, it's not mine. Jesus says, you are the salt of the earth and you are the light of the world. Remember this too, Jesus' disciples, they were nothing. They were not political leaders, they were not well educated by and large, they didn't come from wealthy families or royalty, but they were who God called. And so let me leave you today with two practical ways for you, if you are a follower of Christ, to be salt and light to our earth. The first practical, I'm just using two words that you guys both, you all know. The first one is today. Today. Today we have city sweep. Today we have the barbecue. And this could sound like an announcement for an event, but we don't do these kinds of things to grow our population at Hillside, City Sweep exists to serve Vermilion. Why? 
Is it so that we can make ourselves feel good? Is it so that we can send or we can spend our missions dollars? Is it so that we can fill up our calendars? Because we all know we all need one more event. The answer is no, no, and no to all of those questions. These events today exist to share the light and salt that our world so deeply needs and desperately needs. These events are purpose for us as a church to move out of our walls, out of the salt shaker, and be salt and light in our community. It is a practical way to practice your faith with other believers. And then the barbecue tonight is just a practical way to show our community the results of being bound together by Jesus Christ. It's so practical. Be salt and light. I think in some ways that might be the easiest step. The second thing, I think, in terms of application is tomorrow. <clears throat> tomorrow. City sweep is today, but tomorrow I think is even more important in my mind. Because we can all get on board with Jesus' call to be his disciples, to be salt to a decaying world and then light to a dark world. But then when today is over, tomorrow comes. And wh what are we supposed to do? If you are a follower of Jesus, and I know I've said this way a bunch of times today, you are the church. You are the church. God has called you to where you have been called. And I know that, um, and maybe we don't think it directly, but I know subconsciously many of us think, well, Robbie, you're the pastor. Dan, you're the pastor. You, you be the church. And I have to say that I think I do have an amazing opportunity week in and week out to share the truth of God's word from a stage. And it is a huge platform for sure, but I don't have access to be salt and light where all of you have access to be salt and light. God, God has called you where he has called you. And sometimes we ask these questions like, I wonder what God is calling me to in my life. He's called you to where he's called you. <laughs> God has called you to where he has called you, and some of you are in school, and God has called you there. God is calling you to be salt and light in your school. Some of you are in the workplace or in your offices, and God is calling you to be salt and light there. Some of you are at home with babies, and God is calling you to be salt and light there. Some of you live in neighborhoods with lots of people, and God is calling you to be salt and light there. Some of you are making a run to Costco tomorrow, and God is calling you there to be salt and light. I wanted to share this with you guys, just a personal story uh, from an experience I had a, a little over a year ago. And I have to say that I'm a little bit hesitant to share this story because I really want to glorify God for the work that He has done in me and through me. Um, so the point of my sharing this story with you this morning is it, it's not about me, and please don't hear that. It's about what God does through us when we submit to the lordship of him in our lives. It's what it might look like to be salt and light wherever you're going. But I know that uh, many of you are aware that um, for six months, right before Julianne and I and the kids moved here to Vermilion, I actually uh, was a car salesman. <laughs> it was a little bit of a break between my last ministry time and this time. And I was asking the question, where can I impact people and talk to people and then also do something I've never done before? So I sold Toyotas. Okay. Um, in Kalispell, Montana. And 
There are some days that I wonder if the reason that I even did that was really just for me to learn how to practice what I preached for so many years. But the dealership, and, and maybe just this one, but I think probably most workplaces are like this, it was a dark place. It was a dark place. The, the effects of the decay of the world were all over that workplace. L- lots of the guys I was working with, their marriages were struggling. The effects of decay were seen in divorce, lots of it. Most of the team of guys that um, were there were what we might call typical males. Um, they swore a lot and a lot. Um, they talked disrespectfully and immorally about just about every woman that came, came into view. They, um, maybe you might expect this in sales, but they were also, many of them, very full of themselves, which made them gossipy and backstabbers. And again, this might be every workplace, I don't know. But I joined the team, and I didn't really fit in, um, not because I was awesome, but because uh, God had been doing a work in my life for so many years, redeeming and sanctifying me for lots and lots of years. And here is how I became salt and light in the Toyota dealership. I already was salt and light when I went there because I'm a follower of Jesus, but I didn't start preaching every day during our staff meetings about how they were all going to hell for the way they were living. I didn't tell them that they should just be like me and look down my nose at them and say, if you would all just be like me, all your problems would go away, because that's not true. Here's what I did. And this is where I'm really hesitant, because all I was doing was trying to honor God with my life, but I lived to honor God. I had clean language. I didn't speak the way they did. My tongue did not get loose. I didn't allow it to, even when I wanted it to. I I only talked and acted respectfully towards women, both that I worked with and that I encountered at the dealership. I only spoke about my wife positively. How could I not? If you've met her, that was easy. I treated everyone on our team with dignity and kindness. I remained humble and teachable, and it wasn't easy. And all of this did not happen because of how good I am. I would have been in the exact opposite direction had I not had the Holy Spirit empowering me to live for God. All of this is a testimony of God's goodness in my life, and it wasn't me acting better than them, and I didn't tell them they should act like me. I didn't ask them to change. I just said, I'm going to be the salt of the earth and the light of the world because that's who I am in Christ. And here's why I share this story today. I know that it's hard to live this way in a dark world, but slowly and surely, the guys in my life at this dealership started to take notice that I was different. And they made fun of me for sure for it. They called me Rabbi Robbie sometimes. But I I can't even count the number of times that they individually would pull me aside and ask me, Robbie, what do you think I should do with my stepkids? Robbie, will you help me with this certain issue that I'm dealing with? I was constantly being asked to pray for them, and one of them asked me to do his wedding. I said no, but um, because I moved, sorry. <laughs> I, still, I, I, I still text with most of them, and just about a month ago, one of the guys called me up and said, Robbie, this is happening, my 
friend's mom has cancer. It's a big deal. Will you please pray with me? A month ago, I haven't lived there for a year. And again, this is not a story of, wow, look at all that Robbie did. This is a story of God's glory and how he works in his people in dark places. This is a story of what happens when salt hits a decomposing world and light sheds into darkness. When they see your good works, when they see who you are because of Jesus Christ, they want what you have, God. They want the security and the joy of kingdom life. God is glorified. And let me tell you, I will still, not for a second, say that I am better than any one of those men at that dealership. I'm not. But man, I hope that my saltiness and my light will help lead them to Jesus Christ, because that's what they need. And maybe this is a part of your testimony, too. Maybe it was not, but... Most of us do not encounter Christ through a street evangelism, street evangelist or a drive-by Facebook post that we read and we were like, oh, I want to be a Christian now. Or tweets or any of that kind of stuff. Most of us come to know Jesus because of a relationship with a Christian. Because we saw their faith in action. John Stott once said that the greatest hindrance to the advance of the gospel worldwide is the failure of the lives of God's people. I want you to hear me very clearly on this. The worship team can come on up. If you have put your faith in Christ, Jesus is saying this to you today. You are salt. You are light. You do not become salt and light. This is who you are when you put your faith in me. And so the question that you need to ask yourself this morning, that I need to ask myself this morning, they're hard but they're necessary questions, and here they are. Is my life so diluted that my testimony is not effective? Do people in my school and in my workplace and in my neighborhood know that I'm a follower of Jesus Christ? Is the focus of my life to bring God glory, and how am I going to let my light shine this week to the glory of God? Let me end the way that I started. It's with that Martin Lloyd-Jones quote. It says this, The glory of the gospel is that when the church is absolutely different from the world, she invariably attracts it. It is then that the world is made to listen to her message, though it may hate it at first. Let me pray for us. Father, thank you again for your word. God, thank you for the high calling to be salt and light. And thank you, Father, that you didn't say become salt and become light. You said that you make us salt and light when we are followers of Jesus. And Lord, um, God, I just pray for conviction for all of us that however we are acting in our neighborhoods, whatever we are doing in our workplace, that we wouldn't become salty and have a lot of light and be vocal and loud so that we can be seen as self-righteous but god i pray that we would realize that we are made those things by you in christ and lord i pray that we would desire so strongly to bring you glory and so strongly for people to see our good works and glorify you god we want people to know you and so lord i pray the way that we live kingdom life would draw people into your kingdom. We love you so much. In Jesus' name, amen.